Well, why don't we go ahead and start? The door is officially closed. I will. Uh, <laughs> cabin doors are closed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to, uh, to review and to learn and to see how your hand has been at work in your church over time and the ways in which you have uh, encouraged your people through song uh, and the praise and the thanks that we return through that. Father, I pray that you'd be with us in this final time uh, as, we, as we wrap up and as we hopefully get through some questions, that you would grow us in Christ to see more clearly your beauty above all things. In Jesus' name, amen. So <clears throat> this last lesson is un called Untune That String, uh, which comes from Shakespeare, from uh, Toilets and Cressida. Take but degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. And it's part of a long speech, which is all very good, but all pertaining to the idea of, um, of harmony in the spheres, things that we've talked about up to this point in time. Um, that if you, if you make something discordant, if you put it out of tune, uh, then all these other things follow. And he's talking about not just discordant music, but also the discord of the heart and the discord of relationships. Uh, all those things then follow out of uh, the discord as we see within the context of music. So I want a quick review then of last week as well. We talked about humanism, enlightenment, romanticism, revivalism, etc. So just to hit the highlights, you can listen to the, um, the entire class online, but just to hit the highlights with regards to humanism within the church, uh, aspects of pietism, there became a greater emphasis on uh, the personal experience, greater emphasis on personal confession and repentance, um, and less of an understanding of the corporate nature of who we are as the body of Christ. And then with the enlightenment, with the intentionality of separating the idea of the metaphysical from the physical, that then disconnected any sort of concept or any sort of connecting point to God's order, cosmic order, um, meaning, you know, the very practical things that, that that entails. And I keep coming back to this. This has kind of been like a, you know, one of those mind-blown type of things over the last couple of weeks is that with the disconnect from the physical to the metaphysical and the spiritual, things like the covenant, things like sacraments, things like ceremonies don't have meaning because they're not pointing to anything. They're not pointing to reality beyond uh, the physical. And so because of that, they just become either empty uh, in terms of empty rote uh, expressions or they become almost embarrassing. Um, you see this, and, and I'm not trying to step on any toes, so this is, you know, I don't have anybody in mind, but you see this particularly with things like um, with, with wedding ceremonies. You know, brides and grooms are almost embarrassed to have a church wedding with ceremony and pomp, and they want something, they want something more casual, they want something more um, maybe even in nature or a destination wedding or that type of thing, failing to recognize the fact that words have power and bring things into being because they point to spiritual realities. And so there's a very spiritual nature then to the physical things we do. Uh, we know that uh, even within the context of postures of worship. So there's a difference between standing and praying and kneeling and praying. Your body, you know, by the very posture, has a different attitude towards it. And those things are physical, they're incarnate, um, but there's a, there's a spiritual and 
physical connecting point. And that's one of the things in the Enlightenment, because of disconnecting from the metaphysical, from the spiritual, you lose those aspects of meaning. Then with the rise of Romanticism, we had two trains of thought here. One was kind of the historicism. Let's get back to what's been done before in some sort of way. So the, there was a bit of a liturgical renewal. We talked about hymns, ancient and modern, uh, the hymn book that was put together by, um, by some Anglican um, pastors that sold 4.5 uh, million copies in eight years in the uh, 1860s. So pretty big seller. But also the romanticism in terms of this sentimentalism. So we talked about all the my mama's praying for me hymns. Um, and, um, you know, Jesus, please tell my mother that I'm on my way type of things. Um, and there's a whole bunch of them. There's that aspect. And then the revivalism, um, that there were hymns that, that needed to be written from the revivalist standpoint to encourage this personal, pietistic, individual response that played upon the emotions, uh, that was borrowing from the... Um, um, the saloon, borrowing also from the salon, and uh, encouraging some sort of emotional response. Also, because of this, there were some other, some other aspects in terms of the shift from vocal music to instrumental, because instruments are more emotional. Uh, instruments can engage your emotions. They can be louder. They can be faster. Um, they, can, you know, it, they can move you along, as opposed to um, vocal works. You see this in the secular concert stage. And also that aspect, too, in which the, um, the church no longer led in terms of the arts, but was following then what was going on in culture. And so there's a shift there, too. As it was before, more the culture was following what was happening in the church, um, and this was, this was a reverse of that. So all these things, it's important, one, just not to, hey, this is what we did last week, but this really lays the foundation then for what moves after that in terms of the 20th century and 21st century. So we, we've talked about the idea of music in the cosmos. Um, what happens when music is disconnected, practically speaking? So one, one uh, quick thing, I don't have this in here, but that's okay. Um, I wanna run through this quick list of, of um, medieval worship values versus more modern worship values. Now this is, obviously there are, um, you, you know, there are examples which contradict this, but holistically thinking. For medieval worship, it was cosmic. It was eternal. You know, the very structure of churches was, was designed to be a representation of heaven on earth. It was designed in a human scale. It was designed to reflect the proportions of the human body, the incarnational aspect of Christ come to earth, and to be a bit of heaven on earth. Going, going back to the ideas of the temple, the tabernacle, um, it's very interesting. I may have said this last week, but if I did, sorry. Um, it's very interesting that the proportions that God gives Noah for Noah's ark are the same as the proportions of the ark of the covenant which is also the same as the proportions which medieval cathedral constructors, architects, and, and builders used. Um, this five to three ratio, this, uh, this aspect of Moses seeing the heavenlies, seeing what God intended in terms of worship and architectural space, ha that having meaning, and then seeing those things reflected uh, through medieval worship. Modern worship is more on a human scale, uh, organized more on human concerns. You see that even along the lines with, you know, you'll, um, you'll see some uh, sermon series um, about you know dealing with current events or how you're supposed to think about certain things as opposed to um, 
the more cosmic, eternal aspect of the word. Medieval worship was more formal and ceremonial. As I said before, that pointed to uh, metaphysical spiritual realities. Modern worship is more personal. It's more intimate. Uh, it's more anti-formal. Medieval worship tended to be objective. Modern worship tends to be subjective. Medieval worship tends to be mysterious and poetic. Modern worship tends to be reasonable and prosaic. Now, think of this from the standpoint, there's nothing wrong with reason, uh, but think of it from the standpoint of, of um, you know, if you've been in a church situation in which the primary focus of the worship service is to come and sit and listen to a lecture, to the expert give you, you know, expert advice or expert uh, um, uh, understanding of scripture, you write down notes and you leave. It's primarily a, a mental, uh, rational response, not the holistic forming of the affections that worship would have been in more medieval, uh, medieval perspective. And it's also mo more prose-driven as opposed to poetry-driven. Medieval worship was also aristocratic and hierarchical. Modern worship tends to be popular and democratic. Medieval worship was often conducted in vast, resonant spaces. Modern worship often conducted in low-built spaces with dry acoustics. Uh, I've known of churches that have had open spaces that have intentionally made their space dry, went through the acoustical process of, of bringing in uh, experts and then uh, uh, deadening panels so that the space would not have resonance, so that they could then insert artificial resonance through their, uh, through their sound system so they could control it. Um, so there's, there's just kind of a, a quick list. Um, and not necessarily saying, you know, there, there are aspects that are good on both sides, not saying this is the way we ought to be and this way, but the, 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 the concerns change, the focus changes, the foundation changes. So with regards to um, music disconnected from the cosmos, you see a list there, uh, what I like, subjective. Music becomes very much about um, what you like, right? You know, you listen to the things that you like. There's a big difference, too, between um, participating in making music and being a, a, a passive recipient of that. Now, I'm talking holistically, too, not just with regards to worship, but even in the whole context of, of the music that surrounds you. Um, because of that, too, we often use music for certain purposes um, and not enjoy and appreciate music for the sake of music itself. Uh, Lewis talks about this, C.S. Lewis talks about this with regards to an experiment in criticism and how we use the arts as opposed to receiving the arts. We use them for particular ends. Um, the, the, the music that came out of the Enlightenment period was written to please the audience. Um, because of that, it needed to be new. It needed to be fashionable. Uh, it needed to follow the trends of the time. This is why um, Handel is not as good of a composer as Bach, because he was always writing to please the crowds in London. And, uh, and he, was, he was a slave to the ticket office. Um, Nothing wrong with Handel, but just, you know, it's a different, and he also didn't write for the church. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting dividing line there. I mean, he's writing for the concert stage, he's writing for the concert hall, um, and, not, and not writing liturgical music. So it's a different type of thing, and we'll talk about that difference here in a minute. 
self-expression. Um, music becomes almost like a personal soundtrack, you know, because of the Walkman, which is a revolutionary um, technolog technological advancement, or maybe not advancement. Um, now the iPod or whatever personal device you use. But think about it from the standpoint of when you used to listen to music, if it was an LP, everybody had to listen to it with you. Um, you could plug in eventually headphones, but even still, you know, there was that little sound of the needle scratching. Um, but it was a communal aspect. Now you can listen to your own music while I listen to my own music at the same time. And I can have my playlist that reflects me or reflects my moods or affects my moods, depending on how, how I go about that. So it becomes a very personal, um, personal aspect. Because of that, music becomes an issue of self-identity. We get very sensitive about music. All right? Um, if, if I tell you that, or I won't use me as an example, if Sarah tells you that um, your music is not good, I just threw you under the bus, <laughs> uh, you might get a little testy with her, and you might defend why your music actually is good uh, and why you like it. Um, because it, it's a, it becomes very much an issue of self-identity. I was, I was having a conversation with Ken Myers a few years ago from Mars Hill Audio, and he was, he was describing that phenomenon. Uh, the only thing that he could liken it to is issues of sexuality. Because it becomes an offense if you, don't, if you, if you begin to criticize someone's preferences in music. It, it, it's... Um, it's a fascinating phenomenon because we don't normally look at an expert in the field and say, um, I know more than you do about this because I like something um, in, in a different way. Right? Uh, you, know, you, you have people with you know, multiple degrees in music um, and people will come up to them and say, you're doing it wrong, who have no background in music whatsoever because people feel very deeply about how music ought to be because it becomes a very personally realized as a part of self-identity. Uh, music is also very emotionally driven. And so we feed on emotions one way or the other. Uh, we use it that way. Now, that is an aspect of music, but if you remember from the earlier, uh, from the earlier generations, from the earlier centuries, the idea of the purpose of the cosmic significance of music played a greater role than how it moved us. So I had a student years ago who... Um, I, it was interesting. I was playing. Uh, I was trying to make several points with uh, with different works, and uh, I was playing some art music, which for me was really dramatic art music and really kind of intense. And uh, you know, and he kept saying it's so calm. Um, well, come to find out, mostly what he listened to um, was was music to feed his anger. When he felt angry at his family, at his parents particularly, he would put on music that he knew. Would, would feed that feed that emotion. So he was playing very much into that idea of, of matching his emotion with what he was listening to, but not to counterbalance it, but to actually accentuate it. And because of all these things, the things that we talked about even from the beginning weeks, we have forgotten the role of what music is and its purpose. Um, not just in terms of to glorify God, but to glorify God specifically in the ways in which it reflects his character, reflects the ways in which he has revealed himself in the world that he has made. Music is a thin point between the physical and the transcendent. 
if I can borrow a, uh, an idea from, from, um, from Benedict. Um, the, the purpose then of music, the inheritance of music, is to reflect God's order. And this is more of a recap of what we talked about before. That there's an objective aspect of that. Uh, that nothing exists in the universe without music. That it's inherent in the qualities of uh, the, th the way that God has made things to work. And that the things that are beautiful in music are also the things that are beautiful in architecture. Those are also what makes paintings beautiful in terms of their proportion. Uh, it's also reflective of the proportions inherent in scripture, in, in nature. These, there's, a, um, there's a correspondence between the big things to the little things um, that we see through in the medieval world. There's an understanding then of how all those things point to the ultimate realities. Um, there's a, this aspect, and this is more medieval aspect, that, that music sustains God's order. Think of it from this perspective. If what we do is either creating harmony or creating discord, not just musically, but this is in terms of relationships, in terms of sin patterns and temptations, in terms of the choices, life choices that we make, if it's either causing harmony or discord, then those things which cause harmony are singing with, are, are harmonizing with uh, the way that God meant the world to be. And that's essentially what the Ten Commandments are. It's not this do or do not you know, aspect. It, it's God is telling us that the way that he made the world, these are the ways in which we can live harmoniously in, in his created order. And if we don't do those things, it causes sin, it causes discord. Um, and so there's a path of harmony there in which we are harmonizing with and sustaining the order that God has created. And to, to not do those things causes discord. And so that's reflective of music, but it's also reflective of the way that we live. It's reflective of the way in which we snap back at somebody. It's reflective of the way that we give generously. It's reflective of the way in which we are in community with one another. And that's that aspect then of harmonia, of peace, of shalom, of the way things ought to be, the peace that comes through the blood of the cross, and the ultimate theological aspect of that, that, that discord came through sin in the garden, peace comes through the blood of the cross, shalom, and that Christ has come to cosmically redeem his creation. There's a lot there, but we'll, you know, we've already talked about some of that. Um, I also believe music is an aspect of creation mandate. It's taking dominion over sound and time. It's heard math. It's heard numbers. It's heard proportions. And so it's a, a, a direct reflection then of, of God's creation and man's role to, to use that, to steward it as part of taking dominion. Music is embodied Choir members have synchronized heartbeats. When I speak, uh, I'm creating sound waves that, that move through you. There's a, very, there's a very incarnational aspect of singing, uh, what it means to make music together as opposed to just listening to music. And to do that communally, it's, a very, it's no wonder that it's been a part of communal religious practice throughout the centuries. Um, and because of that, you know, the, the whole uh, is greater than the sum of the parts. You know, and not just um, 
you know, emotionally, but, but actually acoustically. So when, when we sing in parts, um, one, it's a beautiful picture of the body of Christ because um, you can't do it all yourself, right? You know, <laughs> you need other people. Um, there's, um, there's a way in which we rely on one another. We each have a role to play uh, that accentuates the whole. But there's also, and I won't get too technical here, there's also a way in which when you sing in harmony, um, the, the overtones, the, the, the way that the sound waves um, accentuate one another actually creates additional sounds or emphasizes other sounds. And so it's not just a matter of, you know, A creating sound and B creating sound, um, but A and B creating sound together creates other sounds than what they're, than what they're playing or singing. And so there's a very real sense in which the communal aspect of that is greater than um, what you would do on your own. So that's a beautiful picture there. There's, um, Jeremy Begbie is a, is a wonderful uh, Christian writer and thinker and theologian on issues of music. And it's a wonderful discussion of, of um, how you can think about the doctrine of the Trinity through sound. You know, any visual representation of the Trinity falls into some sort of theological error, one way or the other. They're instructive and they're helpful, but there are ways in which they, they're, they're not. Um, but he talks about the idea of when you, when you play a note, it fills an entire space. When you play two notes, it can't fill any more space. It just adds two what's already there. When you play a third note, you've got a chord, you've got this, this, um, this relationship between those three sounds, uh, which embodies the same space, but with different qualities individually, but with a new quality altogether. He does it much better. But, but there's, there's, a, there's theological uh, significance there as well. Uh, submission as well with regards to music. Lewis talks about the fact that for every uh, new book you read, you need to read old books. Um, we don't tend to think that same way with regards to music. For every new piece of music that you listen to or recent piece of music, um, we should probably also go back and listen to old music um, and understand some of the context of that, uh, how it builds upon one another. I think I've mentioned this before as well. The, the idea too is when you're talking about worship, it's not just a matter of what you like, um, but what is pleasing to God. What is it, is it that he is required and what does it look like to submit ourselves to things that we know are for our good, that are going to, um, to affect and develop our spiritual life and, our, and to form us spiritually, but are not necessarily the things that we would gravitate to just on our own, on our own way. We do this all the time. If you diet, you choose certain foods that you may not choose otherwise. If you work out, you do exercises and things that... Uh, that you don't necessarily enjoy to begin with, but you, over time you develop an affinity or an affection for those things. The same is true for spiritual formation, for Christian formation. We have to discipline ourselves to do things that we don't necessarily like, but we know that they're good for us because then God will give us those desires of our hearts to love those things which are reflective of who he is and to follow in this path. So <clears throat> along those lines then, um, part of the things that happen is that we, you know, we only listen to what we like. Um, we only have a, an attention span of about three minutes with regards to music, <laughs> not 30 or three hours. Um, 
you know, there's a, there's a difference too between what you can do in developing a musical idea over 15 minutes or over 30 minutes than, than um, trying to write a hook that gets you in the first few seconds. Um, we also think of music as a commodity. And so whether it's buying it or thinking that we own it or you know, trying to find it online for free, um, or the idea that, that it's, it, it is a, um, useful to another end. You know, we've got to learn music because it's going to give us a good grade. Um, certain types of music are going to make us um, you know, acceptable to certain groups of people. So if I listen to you know, art music, classical music, then I'm going to be perceived in this particular way. Um, if I listen to rap, then this group of peers are going to think of me in a particular way. And so we think of it also as kind of an entrance into, um, into a commodity in terms of relationship into society. Uh, we also tend to listen without judgment, primarily because we don't know what we're listening to. We don't know how to listen to music um, because we've lost kind of that bit of language of what music is about. Um, mostly, probably, the way that music is taught is, um, is through narrative, not through music as its own language. We apply a narrative structure. So, um, you know, you have a teacher that will say, you know, what do you think about when you hear this piece of music? And people start, you know, children or adults, whatever, you know, well, I see a field, I see a horse running through the field, or, you know, draw a picture of how this music makes you feel, as opposed to what is the, you know, it's like, <laughs> as a language, it's like reading a, uh, a, um, a poem and saying, how does it make you feel, not what is the poet saying? Because um, the poet is saying particular things. It may make you feel particular ways, but to disregard how the poet is using language um, and how the poet, and what the poet is actually trying to say uh, is to disregard what's going on in the poem itself. Uh, but for some reason, with music, we don't have that same kind of sense. So with regards to um, aesthetics and worship, and these are some kind of some guiding principles, worship has a different aesthetic than other opportunities for music making. And so when music is in the context of the church, its purpose is different. Praise and thanks to God to encourage congregational singing. Um, but there's a difference then on, on how we approach that, how you approach music and worship versus how you approach playing for a coffee shop or playing for an arena or playing a recital um, there, there are, or a symphony hall. There's a, there's a, different, there's a different purpose uh, and therefore the practice of how you play and what you play and, and, and how you go about that is different. Um, the setting matters. Um, you know, there's a difference between you know, singing around the campfire and singing on Sunday morning, or there should be. And I think one of the things that we've lost, and I think as part of a culture uh, in, in, in churches, are multiple communal venues for music making. Because we, we're not singing around the campfire, because we're not um, you know, having house concerts and singing together for fun, um, the type of music that we do, would do in those type of situations have no place within our communal life unless we bring it into the church, unless we bring it into corporate worship. And so I would argue there's a difference there then in terms of the aesthetic of those things, that what happens uh, Lord's Day worship has a different aesthetic and purpose than for other communal music-making opportunities. And because of that, we, play, we should play instruments differently. Um, for example, how you play an organ for a recital 
um, is different than how you should play an organ for supporting congregational singing, or how you should play an organ to even uh, to accompany a choir. How you play a guitar for a uh, songwriter's night at a um, coffee shop is different than how you should play a guitar in worship. The purpose is different. The aesthetic is different. Um, percussion is a, is a great example the, along those lines. The Bible speaks multiple times about the use of percussion. Um, most use of percussion in, um, in contemporary worship is emulating uh, the radio, is emulating what people hear on, on the radio in terms of pop, rock, et cetera, um, as opposed to what is appropriate use of percussion within the context of corporate worship. So even in the mindset of thinking about those things, on how then, how does it support and encourage the work of the people in the context of worship makes us have to think differently. I know I've used this example before, but I'll use it again. You know, I've, been, I've been in contemporary worship services in which it didn't matter whether I sang or not. One, I couldn't hear myself sing even if I tried to. Uh, <laughs> and two, there was so much of a performance going on that it didn't, didn't really matter. I've also been in, um, in high church situations in which it didn't matter whether I sung or not because the brass ensemble and the organ was so loud and so confusing as to what they were playing between verses that I didn't know where I was supposed to sing. I have two degrees in music. I did not know where I was supposed to sing. Um, you know, for the congregation to know when they're invited to sing, when they're a part of it, would be unknown. Um, and, and so it's not just a low church, high church type of thing that has, that has a part to play, but also the mentality of what the role of music is and how it is utilized within the context of worship. How does it encourage the congregation to sing? So you know, part of that, in, you know, in, even in, with regards to Sunday morning, I often make musical decisions um, which are less about the beauty of, or less about how I would do the music in other settings and more about encouraging the congregation to know when to sing and how to sing. Because I want the congregation to know subconsciously where they're supposed to sing, where they're supposed to come in. There's nothing worse if you are a hesitant singer to come in and realize that you're the only one. So to, you know, to avoid that, to make sure that everybody knows just intuitively where you're supposed to sing without making a big show or production of it. Um, I don't do a lot of these behind the piano, you know. You know, you know. Um, I will, I, <laughs> one more time with feeling. Um, <laughs> I will say that, that uh, um, we, one of the hymns this morning, we have a tag of the last line. We sing the last line twice, uh, just to give you a heads up if you're going into second service, because that's unusual. Um, but it has, it has a theological uh, significance there. Uh, so worship then in the, in the church community. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Uh, that beauty matters. Um, and th those are things that are subconscious. Um, things, like, uh, things like the layout of the bulletin, the feel of the paper, um, the aesthetics of the room, um, the fact that we use glass cups for communion and not little plastic ones with the little burr on them, you know? <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> um, thank you, Kathleen. Um, those, things, those things matter. Um, and, and, and so beauty is an important, it's a part of the character of who God is. 
it is apologetic in and of itself because it points us to the transcendence of who God is and leads us to wanting to know more of who he is. Beauty, truth, and goodness. We often, often talk about those three. Uh, with regards to music, we often talk about that with regards to, uh, in, with regards to form and content as well, that, um, that the words are the content and the music is the delivery system or the form. Um, I would argue that, um, that words, text, have form and content. That music has form and content, and the marriage of the two together have form and content. Because you can say true things, but very inartfully. Um, you know, you, I don't have to give examples. I think you can think of examples. Uh, you can say things that are, that are theologically true, but in such a way that it undermines the truth of them. You can have music uh, that undermines the weight of of theological truth, of transcendent truth by its triviality. Those things need to match. There needs to be a connecting point in which music is not just beautiful, but music is also true, and music is also good. It's a much longer, deeper conversation. But music has, even instrumental music has a moral component, and music has a truth component. And those things together then meld to, for what should be utilized within the context of congregational worship. Those are some of the principles and the ideas then. We've, we've started with the cosmic aspect. We've seen how that changed, the emotionalism, the sentimentalism, et cetera. Uh, but getting back to the cosmic reality of that and then how those things, how, how we think about those things within the context then of, of a Sunday morning in terms of corporate or congregational worship becomes significant to their purpose, to how it's uh, utilized, and to what end. That's kind of the foundation. I saw, told you I wanted to leave some time for questions. Um, that's kind of the foundation of how, to th uh, how I think about choosing things for Sunday morning. There's also some other considerations as well. Um, but then also how, uh, how to then um, you know, think about and evaluate what goes on across the board in, um, in, um, in worship in the context of, um, of Lord's Day. So I told you I'd leave time for questions, so that was my intro. Yes, Jean. Yes, yes. I mean, uh, the purpose because um, because music is uh, connected to the ideas of order and um, the create the created order which God made. Good music, appropriate music, is you know is glorifying to God in whatever context, whether it's you know whether the the words are strictly you know Christian or not. Um, so you know is is. Can art, you know, the, the whole question is, can art be made by an unbeliever be glorifying to God? Yes. Yes. So, but, but Christians, should we, should we be enjoying making music in other contexts, like coffee house music? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, the church, the church should, have, should have those opportunities. I mean, we should have a songwriter's night. Not on Sunday. Well, no. I mean, but I'm saying the church should. The church does. The church has abdicated those roles, 
And so do your songwriter's night at the, at, you know, at, at Kimbrough's, but you know, why not do a songwriter's night here too? Not as, not as corporate worship, but as an, an opportunity for the, the body to gather together. Yes. <laughs> For the context of worship or just listening? So the, the music is good, but the lyrics are bad. Um, Thank you. Um, <laughs> so, right. Um, I think yes. I mean, we do we. There's all truth is God's truth. I mean, you know, to get back to the question of you know why do you read pagan literature? Um, you know, if you read pagan literature, you know, in terms of, of the, the ancient Greeks or um, the Aeneid or um, works throughout the Middle Ages. I mean, is there, is there something that we can learn from them? Is there truth there? Yes. Because the, the, the human experience um, is the same. And we have the same fears and we have the same struggles and, we, and ultimately the same solutions are God's solutions and all story is God's story. And so there are things that we learn from that. So even, you know, now that's not a license to uh, listen to depravity, um, but within the context of, of, um, of and, and, and that's not universal either in terms of all people should listen to all things. I mean, in terms of one's own heart, in terms of, of struggles or temptations or past history, et cetera, you know, there are things that we should probably avoid. Um, but in the context of, of receiving those things as um, you know, there being truth there. I mean, basically, you know, arts world <laughs> you know, tend to divide itself between the way things ought to be um, and the way things are from this perspective of, you know, we should have lived life in the garden until sin entered. We should have had perfect communion with, with God in the cool of the day. Um, we don't have those things because sin entered the world, and there is brokenness, um, and there is real brokenness. And so there's a truth in speaking about brokenness, but if we only land on the brokenness uh, and don't point to the other, then we've lost something. But if we only land on this, you know, wonderful idealized utopian picture of how things ought to be, then we're, then we're not paying attention to where God has placed us. So there's a tension between those two, and I think there's the necessity of the two, um, and in wisdom being encountering and, and dealing with things that are not necessarily um, you know, Christian and by nature, but also um, are purveyors of truth. Um, in terms of non-liturgical music? <laughs> um, yeah, well, a number, number of things. I, um, um, you know, I, I do listen to various liturgical pieces. I've, I've been listening to some, um, some um, Russian chant, uh, liturgical chant recently um, for fun. 
Um, it, it really is. It's kind of cool. It's, it's, like it's a whole different thing. Um, there's uh, one of my favorite newer artists is uh, Rhiannon Giddens, uh, formerly with the Carolina Chocolate Drops. Um, she has an amazing voice, and she does some really interesting... Um, she, she plays old-style banjo, um, like metal banjo. Uh, she has a new album coming out with a few other ladies. Um, that's, that's a more modern uh, singer-songwriter type of person. Um, there's a Norwegian composer, Ola Yelo, um, who um, I've recently discovered just some choral pieces, but also like almost jazz improvisational things. Um, he may or may not show up in Good Friday. Um, one of his pieces, not him. Um, what else? The, the other thing, too, is I also tend to limit what I listen to to the time that I have to actively listen to it. And so just pure background music, I don't do a lot of, because when I listen to music, I want to be able to pay attention to it. Which would be another, another, yeah. I, I, I'm sorry, I can think of some others, but yeah, but that's kind of the, the quick view of things. So how to become more, as adults, more educated as to what to listen to. So Sophie keeps... Well, not, not necessarily educated as to what to listen to, but you... I mean, how to listen to, yeah. Yeah, we don't yeah. know what we're listening to, so we can't understand the value of it. Right. All right, Sophie's been on me about that. She keeps saying, so what's next? So what, what do you do after this? Um, because I have to say, the feedback and conversation has been wonderful. I mean, this has been a great conversation to enter, and I would love to continue this. I mean, one of the things that she suggested uh, is, you know, we need to do some sort of class for adults how to read music. Um, one of the other things I thought about is, you know, we do film discussions and book discussions. We should do a music discussion. You know, come on such and such a night having listened to this work, and we're going to talk about it in, in piece by piece and to understand what the composer is doing. Um, that's easier in terms of a kind of a one-off than, than signing up for something else. But I, I do believe, I mean, there are, there are churches who do far better job than we do on educating the congregation, teaching them to read uh, music, teaching them to sing parts. Um, we've, got, we've got a lot of room to expand there and grow. Um, those are some quick things. Um, there are some various books and things, um, if one's on, one's on your own, um, and I can tell you those later. But, but I, think, I, think we do, I think we do need to think more congregationally on uh, some ways that we could do this together. Yes? So based on that, what you were just talking about, I would, I would love for you to do an evening where with the interlinear set up the music from a holistic point of view, mm -hmm. when you look at some of these points, very context, form, we do communal, self-expression, emotional, but bringing that into a holistic point of view, looking at the music, even historically or tribal music, that would be a beautiful night. To, I mean, it would take some time to do that, mm -hmm. but that would help many, right? Right. I, mean, I, would, I, would, I would sign up to help do that, because I could do it. It would be a big thing, because discord, mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Those are so important, right? Yes. All of what the arts are and what this is. So anyway, I would love to see that. And the other one in the percussion, um, which when you said that, I go, wow. Because you know, with my background, they know that. And I learned something many years ago when a Native American got up and he said, does everybody know what this is? Boom, 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 boom. And there goes, yeah, it's the drum because the American Indian. Native American, that's your word. He goes, oh, that's how you. I think you know, percussion can um, keep the beat, it can set a mood, or it can add color. And um, generally, in, in a lot of contemporary worship, it keeps the beat. And I would, I would argue the, the order is reversed, that percussion should be used to add color first, sometimes to set a mood, and rarely to, um, to keep the beat. Yes. Location of the choir. It's okay. There's, there's you know, quickly two form of thoughts here because I do want to sing as well. Um, but two form of thoughts. One is that. Um, as the minister represents God, so the choir helps to represent the people. And so the choir should be part of the people and should therefore be in the back. And so they help lead the people from the back. Uh, and then the other perspective would be that, um, that uh, leading from the front to set an example to encourage from that perspective. And to also, I mean, there is a place too, we talked about beauty in worship. There is a place in which choirs can sing things and do things that the congregation cannot do, uh, that enhances and, and beautifies worship. Um, and so that, that, that's where some of that comes from as well, from the front. Uh, but although even, but front, there's a difference too between having the choir spread all out in the front versus the more English idea, the cathedral idea, in which they're um, in rows facing one another, and all you see in the chancel area is basically you know, one person or you know, each row and not, not the whole spread of the choir. So it still doesn't have to be performed. Even the attitude of whether this is performance versus congregational makes a difference on that. Um, let's, let's sing one quick thing here because it has the music of the spheres in it. Um, let's just do verse one of This Is My Father's World. This is my father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings, and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of right.
rocks and trees of skies and seas, his hand the wonders wrought. Uh, two things. Choir rehearsal begins this Wednesday. Y'all sing beautifully. Um, and I really do want this conversation to continue. So, you know, as you, as you have questions or as you have ideas or look for opportunities for us to, whether through Sunday school or evening opportunities, uh, to continue this conversation along. Thank you so much.